in the um, in the meditation just now. Towards the end, I said something about our practice being the art of abiding spaciously and graciously with with what life presents us with. And earlier today somebody asked me to explain a little more what I meant by abiding graciously. So I thought I might use these two terms to, um, as a lens through which to look at our practice, <coughs> to look at the directions and the liberating possibilities of our practice. Abiding spaciously, we could say, is the activity of wisdom. That spaciousness that, is a, that suggests a, a, a certain fluidity, a certain relaxation around, a certain letting go of, a certain wide perspective with what's happening not holding our experience so tightly, not being so identified with what's happening. And abiding graciously, we might say, is the activity of love. Holding what's happening with a certain tenderness, certain generosity rather than with the push-pull, the clinging on to or rejecting that we easily do with a lot of our experience. So these, this wisdom perspective of abiding spaciously and the love perspective of abiding graciously are the, they're often in the tradition spoken of as the two wings not necessarily with that language of spacious and gracious, that's mine, but the wings of wisdom and love. Spoken of as the two wings of our practice. So if we look at what it means to be spacious, we maybe first need to look at what are the aspects of our experience that e most easily take up all the space. What are the, the, the activities, the views, the movements of mind around which we get most compelled and contracted, most demanding and defended? Dharma teachings point to several areas of that. You're invited really to see in your own experience. That's part of what we're doing by putting our experience, like we were saying yesterday, under the microscope of awareness. We're seeing how does experience color consciousness moment by moment. We're seeing the way we tend to fixate upon what's happening in a way that uh, by habit seems 
to take up all the space. One of those is areas is the whole realm of what I want. The realm of wanting is one where a lot of fixation can happen. We can get really single-mindedly focused. Whether, and it's the fantasy life of what I want, who I want, how I want things, when I want things. You see they're just in the microcosm of retreat where lunch, the idea of lunch, can take up all the space. As if lunch is some fabulous thing. <laughs> if lunch will somehow ease all my, my life. And then unfortunately, I mean, it's pretty good lunch, but <laughs> it turns out to be only lunch. And apparently even it, the beans ran out today. <laughs> so even more disappointing if you'd been investing in lunch as the holy grail of your day. And our education, I don't just mean uh, scholastic, I mean the, our whole cultural education, really, in all its different facets. Our education doesn't teach us to be spacious around what we want. Our cultural education really bombards us with things to want. And that's nothing new. The Buddha, two and a half thousand years ago, didn't live in quite such a consumer society as we did, and yet was pointing to the same thing two and a half thousand years ago, was looking to, pointing to how the movement of wanting can take up a lot of space. But how where we, if we want to abide spaciously with our lives, that we need to pay attention to how we are with the natural process of wanting. <coughs> And note, it's important, there's not the suggestion that we should somehow do away with wanting, that no wanting should arise, even though we hear some strange versions of that in, in um, Erzat's Buddhism. There's the encouragement to be spacious around wanting. And you know, when we speak about consumer society, that, that is very much the, the engine of the world we live in. Right? One only has to look at the world of commerce, the world of politics, the endless emphasis on economic growth. What does economic growth mean? It means consuming more things faster than we did last year. That's the only way you can get economic growth. Right? consume more things faster. And then we look at the ecological situation of that kind of metastized, is that the word, metastasized? Um, uh, kind of uh, out of control kind of wanting. It wouldn't be very good for economic growth if everybody was being spacious around their wanting. It's a radical act to be spacious around wanting. I don't know. I mean, I certainly know that there's a hell of a lot more to want. Right? 
we manufacture a lot more things to want over the last, well, certainly since the Industrial Revolution, but particularly the last 50 years, we've really become uh, extraordinary at manufacturing things to want. I don't know if that means just because there's more things to want, if that makes wanting, uh, the wanting mechanism stronger in us than it was two and a half thousand years ago, I don't know. But it's interesting that two and a half thousand years ago, the Buddha called this the practice of going against the stream. He spoke about it as a revolutionary practice. Going against the stream of greed, wanting, greed, hatred and delusion. Going against the stream of basically the, the, the currents, the engines that drive everyday cultural life, the engines of our cultural education. So it's a challenge for us, right, to be spacious around our wanting. And we're not speaking about it as some kind of moral imperative. One should be spacious around wanting. Although, when we look at the, um, the strain put on environmental resources, when we look on the, at the increasing wealth gap and dispar economic disparity, we might also be moved by a sense of a moral imperative, individually and collectively, to attend to our rapacious wanting. We might also know personally a certain kind of hollowness that comes from living in a world where we, many of us have the opportunity actually to fulfill a lot of our wants, only to find, just like lunch, it didn't really do the trick. In fact, the more we slavishly follow the wanting impulse, the more we cultivate the habit of trying to get everything I want. The more opportunity you have to want, the more you, the more you, you go down that course of trying to fulfill all your wants. It's like you work out your wanting muscle. And you only have to look at the, the pages of those dreadful magazines that explore the lives of the what my teacher calls the rich and shameless. <laughs> to, to see the kind of misery of uh, very wealthy, privileged, uh, famous, pandered to lifestyle. Where one's wanting can be out of control. So, we might... Have, there may be an element that feels like a moral imperative to us. There may be an element, and I imagine it's part of why all of us are here, an element of a certain frustration or disillusionment or disappointment with my capacity to, um, to find peace and contentment through wanting stuff. Of course, we easily can translate that wanting stuff into wanting spiritual experiences. We can bring the wanting mentality to our meditation practice. What Trungpa Rinpoche called, first called spiritual materialism. 
trying to get peaceful. I want peaceful. I want still. I want great posture. The kind of meditation that you see in yoga magazines. Usually in a, in a white vest. Mm. I mean, it's kind of yummy. <laughs> yummy meditation. <laughs> Disappointing, isn't it? <clears throat> meditation isn't designed to be yummy. Meditation is designed to confront us with our wanting mechanism and designed to show us a way to be spacious around it, designed to show us the freedom of spaciousness, relaxing around wanting, being spacious with wanting, recognizing that wanting is completely natural mechanism. And then the question is, well, what do I want to do with that wanting? The arising of wanting is a natural mechanism. But if I follow it slavishly, that tends to lead to, well, it's quite exhausting and often disappointing. <coughs> disappointing if we don't get what we want, but also, as we start to see, disappointing even when we keep getting what we want. Very helpful to see that. So we start to be interested in a different way of being with wanting. In a, a way that cultivates spaciousness, equanimity. We start to contact maybe a certain freedom and ease and joy in being able to abide spaciously with wanting. I want to move. I'm uncomfortable. I want to move. Okay. I want to move. But what happens if I stay here? Oh, then I want to move more. Oh, okay. But what happens if I stay here? Right. And if at any point one can't maintain the spaciousness, well, move. That's okay. But helpful to recognize that what you're doing with that certain willingness to not move, that certain willingness not to fight to stay still, but just to soften around the sensation. Relax around the poor old neurotic one that wants to move, that wants everything to be perfect, that wants to get to lunch, that wants, 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 wants. The possibility to recognize wanting, to understand the nature of wanting, to see the promise of wanting, and to recognize the, the kind of the certain hollowness of pursuing wanting endlessly. And to discover the freedom of the capacity to be spacious around what I want. What else takes up a lot of the space? What I think. Goodness, we're fascinated with our own thoughts. Just, I mean, just look at the last couple of days. How fascinated you are with your own thoughts. Even though most of them really aren't very original. <laughs> most of them really aren't very useful. I mean, really, the vast majority, right? Unoriginal thoughts. Circular thought. Thoughts you've had plenty of times before. Regurgitated thoughts. Often we can be struck by just how unuseful a lot of our thoughts are. 
useless snippets of half-remembered stuff. Vague, a lot of thoughts that we're not really particularly invested in. But we still keep a bit of fascination for them. And then we sort of say, oh, I wish that would go away. It's really dull and repetitive and unoriginal. Oh, but I still continue to give it some attention. Fascinated by what I think. Allowing what I think to take up all the space in consciousness. Getting periodically, in meditation at least, very frustrated with the fact that I'm so beholden to my thoughts, and yet nevertheless continuing to give them so much authority. Hence the encouragement, right? Again, thoughts are a natural phenomenon. Just like wanting is a natural phenomenon. It's actually a very helpful phenomenon. Just like wanting is a very helpful phenomenon. If you didn't have any wanting, oh my God, you'd never leave, that's it. You're never going to leave this hall. Thought, a natural phenomenon, helpful phenomenon. But our education, again, I mean the whole education really of just growing up as a human being in whatever time, in whatever culture, in whatever situation. Our human education teaches us, actually importantly at first, to pay attention to our thoughts. But unfortunately, that's as far as most of us get with the evolution of our minds. It's like we get so enamored of the fact that I can think, right? Like Descartes, poor soul, and his idea, I think, so enamored of thought, I think, therefore I am. Rather, I am, therefore I think. But let's not go there. (laughs) (laughs) So the encouragement, we've been speaking about it as leaving thought alone, being spacious around thought, process of relaxing around thought, letting thought be seen and known by awareness, which is the spaciousness of mind. Awareness is the space in which thoughts arise, wanting arises, beliefs arise, views arise. Cultivating a spaciousness in which we start to actually feel the space around thoughts, feel the space between thoughts, in which we start to be able to trust the space, to listen to the space as much as, or increasingly more than, we listen to the thoughts. That way we're actually increasingly able to recognize when there is a useful thought, because there are some. Some thoughts are original, few. Some thoughts are useful. Some thoughts are definitely necessary. Some thoughts can be really, really helpful. Spaciousness around thought helps us to kind of, to stop investing in the useless, repetitive ones, the ones that just reinforce our familiar sense of self and our familiar sense of world, so that Self seems like a solid thing and world seems like a a recognisable thing. And my life consists of negotiating this self around a bunch of other selves to get through a life. When we start to settle more into the space around thoughts, we make room, like we were saying last night in looking at mental constructs, 
emotional constructs, we start to make room for a broader vision, a fuller vision. A fuller way of knowing what's happening. Rather than having just the thought about as our only authority. So we're invited into this relief, into this possibility of being spacious around what I think, of not having what I think be the whole truth. And within that realm of thoughts, of cascading thoughts, the central, most space-taking thought of all, of the I thought, right, the sense of who I take myself to be. And the invitation to be spacious around that. Some of you have been referring to that these days. Right. I tend to take I. I seems self-evident. A feeling of Martinness seems self-evident, seems solid, seems ongoing. And then this experience that I'm trying to be spacious around, well, I'm trying to be spacious around it. Except then this mysterious thing happens where I, know, I can notice. Well, there's a noticing of the I that's trying to be spacious. Well, if, if I, who I take myself to be, can be noticed, what's doing the noticing? Maybe that's me. But how can I be what's doing the notice if seeing if I'm what's being noticed. Oh dear. <laughs> we start to run into a cognitive traffic jam. No way to resolve that cognitively. No way to resolve that. And yet, this invitation, this clue to be spacious around who we take ourselves to be. To see the I thought as an I thought. Because how I who I take myself to be, how I take myself to be, is rather quick to change, rather unreliable. I'm what? Dot, dot, dot. How many of those thoughts have you had today? I'm tired. And maybe tiredness is there. But when, we, when there's no space around the I thought, we sort of take that as being some true thing about me. As if that's the condition I exist in. I'm tired. And the more we land in that, even though we, if we stepped back, we wouldn't say philosophically that that's who I am. But when there's no space around it, we tend to take that as being true in some way. And then we, we sort of defend against that. I'm tired means all kinds of things. Or I'm angry. Or I'm hungry. Or I'm clever. Or I'm really getting the hang of meditation now. Or not. I see someone shaking their head. <laughs> or I'm a terrible meditator. It's very unstable to lurch between all kinds of different self-views. 
while believing, not philosophically, but in the experience, believing that they're true each time. What kind of space, what kind of relief might there be in cultivating the capacity to be spacious around, to be uncompelled by all those self-views that, again, arise naturally. Nothing wrong with the thought, I'm tired or I'm hungry. But we're invited to see how might that look to us if we cultivate a spaciousness around it and not taking it as the whole truth. If we cultivate the spaciousness of our abiding, abiding spaciously, abiding in such a way that we notice the wanting, the conceiving, the imagining, the believing, the identifying. And where the noticing of it, the space around it, the capacity to know it, starts to stand out as being way more significant than just the natural phenomena arising of wanting and thinking and believing and identifying. Perfectly natural for those phenomena to go on. But all the while there's no space around them, we're not able to see them as natural phenomena. We're pulled and pushed around but I, by what I want and what I don't want, what I think and what I don't think, who I am and who I aren't. Who I'm not. <laughs> Spaciousness doesn't do much for the grammar. <laughs> and then we're invited, our practice invites us to abide graciously, tenderly, generously, forgivingly to our experience. It's something that also our education doesn't teach us to do. Our education teaches us to relate demandingly, harshly, aggressively, complainingly, dissatisfiedly to ourselves and to life in general. It's rather shocking to notice how much we tend to emphasize what's wrong. You may have noticed that since you've been here. The tendency to emphasize what's wrong with me, or what's wrong with you, him, her, or what's wrong with the conditions, or what's wrong with my meditation. We kind of have a, an, a sort of ongoing, built-up momentum of assuming there's something wrong. Painful condition. And so we're, we're invited to look at our experience graciously, caringly, tenderly. And there's a lot of emphasis on that in the Buddhist tradition generally. Initially, we hear a lot about loving-kindness and compassion. 
a lot of uh, emphasis in Buddhist practice and in Buddhist communities on being kind and loving and generous. All those qualities are spoken about a lot. <coughs> and yet we can meet those, the imperative towards those qualities harshly. Oh, I've got, I, I must be kind. I should be generous. I've got to be loving. Right? Which itself doesn't feel very loving or tender. And so then there we, there's increasingly recently in kind of contemporary uh, uh, Buddhist world and within the mindfulness, uh, sort of more secular mindfulness world as well, an emphasis on self-compassion, on caring for oneself. But even, and which is can be very important in healing kind of practices and work for people. And yet, the tendency to be unloving, tendency to be harsh, can very easily get hold of that as well. Right? And now, I'm supposed to be tender and caring and gentle. And the imperative of, the, of that can be like a, a real uh, a harsh dogma. And the fact is, all of us are capable of all kinds of crazy shit. <laughs> right. You know, what the mind and heart we live with. We've all got the capacity, I was saying to somebody earlier, my shorthand for you know, just having a human personality, human structure, is needy, greedy, lazy, crazy. So, if you're busy trying to be wise and compassionate and tender and loving, there's the, the sense that the needy, greedy, lazy, crazy one is not room for him in the Dharma hall. Right? Not room for him in the Buddhist practice. He has to be somehow put away. I've got to superimpose on top of that dreadful one some lovely Buddhist one <laughs> instead. That's nice. And, and the fact is, of course, we're not only needy, greedy, lazy, crazy. There is, of course, there's a lot of sincerity. There's a lot of sincerity that brought you here. A lot of sincerity in the fact that you're interested in this kind of practice. A lot of sincerity, no doubt, in the way you care for your children and partners. A lot of sincerity in the work you do in the world. There's a lot of goodness, a lot of good intentions, a lot of good actions. Wonderful. But those things, they don't need to be very much investigated. They're good. They're happening by themselves. The, the, what the, the attention those things need, if anything, is letting yourself feel the goodness of them. Right? That's the way of being gracious. To let yourself feel the good that you do, the good that you feel, the good in the way you care for this or that. And yet we also need to be gracious with our neediness and greediness and laziness and craziness. We need to be gracious with our intolerance. Gracious with our uh, anger. Gracious with our frustration. Gracious with our irritation. Somebody was telling me in the group uh, this afternoon how how angry they'd gotten at lunchtime. 
Oh, so refreshing. So happy when somebody tells me how angry they've gotten. Even the person said, oh, God, I wanted to kill everyone in the kitchen. Oh, thank goodness. <laughs> and of course, the way it was being told, there was no danger of the person actually swinging the <laughs> pot lids around. Right? But it's an important part of caring for our experience, of being gracious to recognize those things, to not disown them, to not put them away. We, we don't get to be gracious, tender, caring, free with our heart. We don't get to be free with our heart by suppressing or somehow magicking away uh, those kind of coarser movements of heart or mind. We get to be free in our heart by being tender towards them. We all uh, have, in just the same way we were speaking about those movements of mind, wanting, thinking, as natural phenomena so too the natural phenomena of getting irritated or offended or uh, indignant or jealous or competitive or whatever. Fill in your own blank for some of your own uh, needy, greedy, lazy, crazy stuff. It was an interesting... A uh, neurological experiment done uh, not so long ago on looking at people's capacity to be uh, offended and to get indignant and to cultivate intolerant views and looking at the, the what happens in the brain when that happens the amygdala lights up right when we get indignant righteous offended etc and looking at people's different capacity and looking at people's kind of life views. And so they take people on that end of the scale of life views, which is called the sort of Trump Farage. <laughs> <laughs> end of the scale. Right? They're the kind of the, the most, the more, the one easy, easily offended, liable to bigotry, etc. And sure enough, the, the amygdala lights up, etc. And they also uh, uh, did the same ex experiment with uh, showing provocative uh, imagery, etc. to people on a more kind of liberal, progressive end of the scale and found that the amygdala lit up in the same way. Right? And yet, that People who expressed more tolerant views, more tolerance around difference in society. The amygdala lit up in the same way, but there was a capacity when it lit up, the frontal cortex would also light up and kind of switch off, like tell the amygdala, hey, shut up, it's okay. It's, it's natural, we all get offended, but we can grow the capacity to be gracious with our inner reactions so that they're not the things ruling us. 
And then interestingly in this experiment, they tried to make people a little more uncomfortable. And the way they did it was they put jam on the door handle <laughs> of the room while we're going in. You know, that's annoying, right? That's irritating. <laughs> Sticky hands. Right? So people would come in and they found that the, with the jam on the door handle, everyone would drift slightly towards the Trump Farage end of the story. <laughs> When we're tired, when we're uncomfortable, when we're irritated, we more, we, we more likely to get entrenched in our view. We're more likely to be narrow in our view. We're more likely to be intolerant. So that's why we practice graciousness. That's why we practice keeping our heart open amidst discomfort. That's why we put ourselves in these conditions which on the one hand are incredibly supportive. There's a lot of love here, a lot of care here, a lot of support here. Support of teaching, support of each other, support of the place, support of the staff. It's incredibly supportive. And yet, within that support, we're exposing ourselves through the day to places where I can't get my wants fulfilled because there's no fridge here <laughs> or wh whatever it might be we're exposing ourselves to these periods where we're just going to sit together in the, until the bell rings and then discomfort arises or irritation arises the staff have invited all the crows here <laughs> you know somebody wrote a note once you know you can write notes to the, the staff Please, can you do something about those crows? <laughs> They're disturbing my meditation practice. <laughs> so, you know, that, that example of the, the amygdala firing, right, it's like the kind of, it's a, just, it's a natural phenomena to to um, to react to a sense of otherness, for example, and maybe most of us are are doing our best, in a way, to be liberal, progressive, tolerant, inclusive, loving. And yet, the sense of strangeness or otherness or difference can easily make the amygdala fire. And yet, we have the capacity to, to actively, consciously develop the capacity to be gracious. Not just gracious with others, even as we develop that. And probably we've all developed quite a lot of capacity to be gracious with others. But to be gracious with the intolerant part of ourselves. I've never, anybody I've ever met with and spoken with deeply, I've never met anybody who is beyond the arising of intolerance. It's humbling for me constantly to be confronted with my own amygdala activation. Right? Tendency to be intolerant. And 
my goodness, our world needs tolerance. Needs us to be tender, generous, forgiving, gracious with each other. It's frightening to see the, both the rhetoric of Trump, Farage, etc. And not just the rhetoric of them as some kind of crazed fringe outsiders, but the collusion with that rhetoric. It's frightening here around the whole uh, referendum to whether there's the language of remain or the language of exit or whatever, to see the increasing normalization of the demonization of the other. So this, this practice that we're doing in this supportive environment, in this beautiful environment, in this helpful environment, it's not just about feeling better feeling more gracious or spacious. It's not just about uh, a few days relief from our stressful or busy lives. It's about transforming heart and mind. It's about cultivating a spaciousness around The wanting that drives, that is driving our planet to the, to the breaking point of its resources and causing climate disruption. It's about actively developing a wider and wider heart wherein no being need be put outside of that. It's about human evolution for ourselves and each other and all those we have contact with and all those we share this planet with. So, for the sake of all of us, Let's be as spacious as we can and as gracious as we can with whatever appears. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.